Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey everyone, I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show and happy Friday. We have a jam-packed show for you today. Two Kelly's Court originals are here, Jonas Belvoir and Mark Iglarsh, meaning I've been having these guys on Kelly's Court since it was Kendall's Court, and I was just starting at Fox News in 2004. Holy Lord, getting long in the tooth. Uh, but that's how good they are. Uh, they, they withstood the test of time and they'll be here in our second hour to get into our juicy legal cases. Hunter Biden, Steve Bannon and Amber Heard all on the docket. Plus, earlier this week, I spoke to Trump backed Arizona gubernatorial candidate Carrie Lake and made an offer to her Pence backed rival to come on the show. Well, she took us up on it. Karen Taylor Robeson will be here today to respond to charges that she is, quote, a rhino and will ask about the former vice president's endorsement and what this race tells us about the future of the Republican Party. We're seeing these intra-party wars pop up state after state. But we begin with rising crime. My first guest has a book coming out in a few days that takes a deep dive into the criminal justice system. He looks into the claims that activists have been making about police criminals and the defund the police movement and finds out if the stats back any of these charges up. He also offers thoughtful ways that we can make things better. Rafael Mangual is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and author of Criminal Injustice, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts the most. Rafael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My gosh, you knew how to hit your book at exactly the right time. Yeah, I guess so. Um, you know, crime kind of, you know, is is has been an issue for for a really long time, but unfortunately, we are in the middle of uh, a bit of a crisis. Um, you know, twenty twenty saw the single largest homicide increase in American history, uh, year over year, and um, which is the year I started working on this book. So. Uh, hopefully it, it, it makes an impact and, and encourages some debate that, that can get us through some of the issues that are holding us back on this front. We can move can in the right direction. you say that again? 2020 saw the single largest, go ahead. The single largest uh, spike in homicides year over year um, in American history is 30% uh, across oh, the country, which is you know, a, a huge jump. Um, of course, it was larger in some cities, smaller in, in other cities. You know, I get into this in the book a little bit, but you yeah. know, we it's kind of a colloquialism to to talk about crime in national terms. Um, and it's understandable. It, it, it helps simplify the conversation um, for some people. And, uh, you know, I get that. But sometimes it distracts us from a really important reality, which is that crime is a problem that is not and has never been equally distributed across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if, if you were to be randomly dropped by, you know, parachute over someplace in the United States, chances are pretty good you're going to land uh, somewhere with a murder rate of zero. You repeat that experiment, say, 10,000 times, and you know uh, there'll be a handful of times where you land in a, a place that rivals some of the most dangerous neighborhoods on earth. Um, and, and that's what really drives you know, national crime rates. Um, and, and we have to remember that there are people living in these places. Um, good people who deserve safety, who are just trying to go about their lives. And you know they're living in neighborhoods with homicide rates you know, 20, 30, 40 times the national rate. When when you read your book and anything at City Journal or Manhattan uh, is to do all the stuff is so great, Raphael. So grateful to you, all of you guys there. Um, you see the truth, which is 
What happens is the media and the Democrats find one cherry picked case of cops who do the wrong thing, cops like a Derek Chauvin with George Floyd, and they put it on loop and they try to say it represents all police officers. And then policing in the neighborhood goes down. The cops feel demoralized. Um, crime goes up and murders spike, sometimes in record levels, in the very communities that the people who got the firestorm started in the way they did, in the dishonest way they did, claim they want to protect. It is black and brown people who are in those numbers that caught the, in the 2020 uh, record setting spike. Absolutely. Those are the people getting killed. Yeah, they bore the absolute brunt of that spike. I mean, to begin with, you know, the, the, if you just look at homicide victimization rates, it's about 10x for black males than it is for, for white males. So when we talk about, you know, uh, violent crime in New York City, for example, every single year for which we have data here, going back to at least 2008, a minimum, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims are either black or Hispanic, almost all of them male. That is one of the starkest and most persistent disparities in the criminal justice data uh, that you can find. And it gets nowhere near as much attention as the disparities uh, of enforcement statistics. And, and that right. is, of course, the focus of you know, people who have been critical of the criminal justice system and of policing. And you're exactly right. They take these really terrible cases, and these are terrible cases, right? I'm, by no means am I arguing that the criminal justice system is perfect, that policing is perfect. It's a human endeavor. Any human endeavor is going to be susceptible to human error, even malice and malevolence, right? So that exists. There's, there is a such thing as a bad cop. Um, but we live in a really, really big country with 330 million people. In a country this size, even really rare things happen every day. And if you have a, a, an institution like the, the sort of mainstream legacy media that's dedicated to playing up one of those really rare things, it can make it seem like this happens on a regular basis. And then that distorts our perception of, of what the issue is. I mean, uh, sometimes I'll give you know, public talks and I'll poll audience members and I'll say, like, how often do you think police officers use force? And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's 15 percent or sometimes it's 50 percent or 60 percent. It's less than one percent. For deadly force, it's it's less it, it's like a less than a fraction of one percent um, of the days. And, on and, the this job. is not something that say that one more time. Of the days on the job, like less than one percent of what the days that they're less, on the job, less than one percent of all arrests that are affected are affected without the use of force. So uh, just one example of this, there was a study um, that looked at a million calls for service across three police departments, one in North Carolina, one in Arizona and one in uh, Louisiana. That million calls for service, those resulted in one hundred and fourteen thousand criminal arrests and that entire data set. There is just one fatal police shooting captured. And in 99.7% of the arrests captured in that data set, no force was used to affect the arrest. And in 98% of the cases in which force was used to affect the arrest, there was either no injury or mild injury uh, to the suspect. This is completely at odds with what the dominant narrative about policing is in America, right? We're all told that police are these sort of trigger happy, violence prone Neanderthals who are just going out there hunting black people like LeBron James said. It's just not true. Um, police are incredibly restrained. That Again, that doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes and that there aren't examples that you can pull um, and essentially cherry pick to, to try and create a, the sort of distorted image that I think a lot of Americans have in their head about policing. But that doesn't do us any good. Um, what it does is it encourages both a pullback on the part of officers who are 
understandably afraid that should they find themselves in a controversial use of force, that they're not going to get the benefit of the doubt, that they're not going to get a fair shake um, when when that case is being evaluated, whether it's by the executives in their department or um, you know by by the by the court of public opinion, and so they pull back. And then on top of that, it encourages a policy regime, a policy agenda that we've seen over the last two years really get accelerated. That is sort of singularly aimed at constraining the power of police, defunding them, minimizing the resources at their disposal, and that has costs. And it has costs that are disproportionately borne by the places with the highest levels of crime. And, and that's the kind of you know, sad irony of this whole debate is that you know, a lot of these reform proposals are advanced in the name of so-called black and brown communities. But these are the places that had benefited the most from the crime declines that policing helped bring about. But if you look at just homicides from 1990 to 2014, there was a massive decrease in the nation's homicide rate. That decrease added 0.14 years to the life expectancy of white men and 1.0 years to the life expectancy of black men. This is from a study done by a, a sociologist named Patrick Sharkey. Um, the public health equivalent of that, according to him, was the elimination of obesity altogether. And so what I try to ask people is, what sense does it make to claim that the institution of policing and criminal justice writ large is, is sort of designed and operated to the detriment of Black communities. How is that congruous with the reality that when the system achieves its stated ends, which are crime declines, ask any police executive in America, what are you trying to do? They're saying control crime. Well, when that succeeds, when that happens, it's Black and brown communities that benefit the most. So yeah. there's a real kind of underlying incongruity in just the basic framing of the argument that uh, I, th I think just doesn't get enough attention and, and makes for a really just unproductive national conversation. That is so profound. I mean, that's uh, many of us have been saying it in the wake of George Floyd and so on over the past couple of years in particular. But really, the, the proper response to the, you know, cops are bad, cops are racist, you know, look at George Floyd, look at Derek Chauvin is you're having the wrong conversation. You're focused on the wrong thing. That's really the proper response, because if you tell me that that 95 percent of the murder victims uh, in in America are black and brown people. Um, and, do we know what the homicide rate or like how many people were killed uh, like on an average basis? How many people get so the, this is shooting victims? This is shooting victims shooting, shooting, in New okay. York. So, I mean, last year it was over a thousand. OK, in New York City, in New York City. Yeah. So. You're talking about a thousand people just to take one city as an example, a thousand people, the 95 percent of whom are black and brown, killed by murder, killed by shooting shot. in a year. Shot, not killed. They, yeah. yeah, just shot, shot, yeah. shot. OK, so we don't look at that at all. Never mind what happens in Chicago, what happens in Baltimore, what happens in Philly. We don't look at that at all. We take one case of a bad cop or an allegedly bad cop and we put it on loop and say that's the problem because it's right. so much easier to fix. It's so much easier to attack the cops and say bad policing you know, this is a problem, racism, as opposed to taking a hard look at why, because in a lot of those cases, it's black on black crime, it's black on brown crime, whatever. Um, and so right. that's that's where the media says, mm, wait, they don't mind covering if it's a black cop killing a black defendant or, you know, a suspect, they'll cover that. They'll say the black cops are racist, too. They've done that many yeah. times, <laughs> but they don't want to get into black on black crime or black on brown crime where neither person has a uniform on at all. And anyone who's called attention to that, like in the media or otherwise, many have been fired for even trying yeah. to raise it or contextualize what we're seeing. 
Why? Why, yeah, why can't Reuters, we go there? Uh, uh, who was, uh, I think, a data journalist at Reuters who, who lost his job after bringing attention um, to this kind of thing. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I think there's just so much power that was discovered, um, so much political power discovered in just perpetuating the narrative that these big legacy institutions, policing, prosecution, uh, corrections, that that they were systemically racist. If you can make that claim, you have a foe to fight against. And if you're fighting against a foe, that just makes you attractive to, you know, um, the public in a way. Like everyone, everyone loves, you know, kind of an underdog story. Everyone loves someone who's sticking it to the man. Um, and so it helps to kind of ignore the good that the man or the system does. I mean, you know, if you look at just study after study after study, I mean, it's one of the most robust findings in the criminological literature, more policing means less crime. And that holds true everywhere. But the effect, given where crime concentrates, the effect is more pronounced in black communities. And so more policing doesn't just mean less crime, it means less black on black crime means less black victimization, less brown victimization. These are precisely the communities that need the most help that already have enough to deal with. They already have all these other social problems uh, that, that they're fighting. And and so it, it becomes really, really um, uh, just important to kind of take a step back, reground the debate in, in data and acknowledge that for all of its problems, institutions like police, like, like our, our carceral system, that they exist because there is uh, this underlying reality of, of violence that is, okay. again, not equally distributed. Take any city in America, about 5% of street segments are going to see about 50% of all crime. Um, and so that has really profound implications for and, and the rest the of the And you see the New York debate. City pattern over and over again. It's not just New York. You see that pattern yeah. over and over again. And the number exactly. of that, that experiment has been replicated in cities across America and cities across the world. It's just the nature of, of violence. I mean, part of it is just a function of the built environment, right? There, there are studies showing, well, for wait, example, wait, wait, that, wait, 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 stand, stand by, because I, I actually want to get there in, in it through a different door. Um, sure. The book, the book talks about sort of why the left doesn't want to go there or what they'll say when it, like looking at black on black crime or, you know, minority on minority crime in the major cities. And it says, oh, you know, they'll talk about poverty, poverty. So it's sort of it's sort of like we don't want to go there because we caused it. You know, America's not doing its part to help these communities. And that's what leads to crime. So don't lecture me about the crime rate with those people, because we should be doing something about that, too. And you take that on square and say, A, it's not true. And then say, B, here's what's actually leading to crime. Here's what actually we might want to consider. It's not necessarily that we can fix it, but here's what's actually driving criminals to commit crimes. So let's start with A. Right. It's the poverty rate. It's the poverty rate. And that's bad. America's bad. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's just not true. There is not a consistent relationship with things like between things like poverty, unemployment, uh, economic inequality and violent crime. There's there's some relationship between those things and property crime, things like theft, which is understandable, right? If you're poor, you're you know, more likely to steal. But that's not the majority of 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 violence, right? When we're talking about shootings, robberies, rapes, homicides. 
that that is not driven by socioeconomic deprivation. Um, we know this because it's just what the data says. I mean, take New York City, for example. 1989, which is the year before homicides peak in New York in 1990 with 2,262 killings. Um, the poverty rate in New York City was actually slightly lower than it was in 2016. Why pick 2016? Because that's the year before our valley number of homicides, of 292. So here you have poverty moving in the wrong direction, albeit slightly, and yet you have this massive, massive decline uh, in homicides. And I have yet to hear the sort of socioeconomic explanation uh, for New York's uh, uh, decline in homicides. It, it just it's it not out there because it's not a socioeconomic phenomenon. It's a it had a lot more to do with the fact that we reinvested in policing. We revolutionized policing. Wait, and let me we stand, took let me seriously stand by the, stand by because it's taking my brain like one <laughs> 10 second delay to catch up with your information, which is also good. So what you're saying is over a somewhat about a 20 plus year period, the poverty rate basically stayed the same, stayed the same. Yeah. And so you would think that if poverty is what's causing violence, criminal and violent crimes, that the violent crime rate would have stayed the same. Right. Because we, right. we did nothing to solve poverty. But it right. didn't. If you look at what happened in New York, the crime rate went way down, like way, way down. down. So what then the the statistician, the, the philosopher, the, the scientist has to look at, well, what else was happening? in New York City during that time. And you in the book go into that. I mean, we increased policing. We took a much more aggressive approach toward crime and carceration and truth and sentencing and so on. Right. Like we got very tough on crime in New York in a way that really did affect the crime rate. So there's there's real data there from which you can, can extrapolate. You, you may find it controversial. You may not like the methods, but we know how to decrease crime. Absolutely. We've done it. We've done it recently. Uh, and we've done it in multiple uh, jurisdictions. And so it's really just a political choice that we're making now to sort of forego these time tested methods of, of keeping crime under control. Like and, what? You know, like if what you want to make the argument that, you know, just uh, things like, you know, incarceration, policing, hotspot policing specifically, um, you know, uh, things like truth and sentencing, actually extending the amount of time that repeat offenders are going to spend behind bars, which is less time that they're going to be out on the street. You know, if you want to oppose those things by saying that the, the, the sort of social costs of that kind of program outweigh uh, the potential benefits, then by all means, make that case, but make it honestly, um, accept that there are going to be costs and, and try and convince people, you know, that those costs are worth bearing. What people do instead is they just try to say, oh, we can safely cut incarceration in half. We can safely we defund the police. They don't actually help. Um, all we have to do is just reinvest that money in, you know, other social programs, which is, you know, mm -hmm. frankly, bunk. Mental I mean, health uh, again, we've just seen so many shocks to the system, whether it's changes in unemployment. Look at the, the Great Recession, right? The unemployment rate nearly doubles across the country. The homicide rate declines by 15% during that period. Crime didn't Whoa. go, violent crime didn't go up during uh, the Great Depression. You know, it, it's, it's just, uh, it's long past time for us to let go of that trope and just start dealing with the reality. The argument I hear about incarceration, one of them is it takes these men, again, as we pointed out, a lot of times minority men away from their families. And that's part of the problem to begin with is that, you know, fatherless homes lead to criminal, you know, kids who don't get ahead and then they become criminals and blah, 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 on and on the circle goes. So we're against incarceration and we're certainly against lengthy incarceration and mandatory minimums and so on. You take that on as well. Yeah, I mean, well, there's 
there's a big assumption underlying that argument, which is that the sort of men that are likely to find themselves behind bars would otherwise be sort of reliable sources of economic and emotional support if they were able to remain with their families. Um, that is a very big assumption that is based on zero data. Um, if you just look at the, the, the incarcerated population, what you're going to find is a really large group of highly antisocial individuals. And there is a large body of, of, of sociological research showing that when you expose children uh, to highly antisocial parents, their outcomes are worse, often worse than just the, the bad outcomes associated with being raised in a single parent family, right? So we know that two parents are better than one, generally speaking. But if one of those parents is highly antisocial in their disposition, it may actually be worse to have both parents present than it would be to have the one pro-social parent absent. Um, and, and that, you know, I think shocks a lot of people. But I mean, just the, the numbers are astounding. Take something like like antisocial personality disorder. This is, you know, a, a very sort of serious uh, psychological diagnosis that you know sort of takes the form of lacking remorse and, you know, uh, outward facing aggression and lack of patience and empathy. Um, the prevalence rate for men in, in just the general public uh, for antisocial personality disorder is about two to four percent. In prison settings, it can range from as high as 40 to 70 percent. Mm. Right. So on what grounds do we posit that we can release people from prison or not incarcerate them in the first place on the belief that they're going to go and be good fathers and, and, and good role models in their community? I mean, the, the just the data just isn't there. I mean, everything from well, substance doesn't that, use doesn't disorders. Doesn't that get to a cause and effect question? Right. Because this is what the people, for example, of no bail are saying, like you take a relatively decent person who falls off the non-crime wagon <laughs> once, commits a mild crime and winds up sitting in Rikers for, you know, a year because they can't afford the bail. And uh, then they finally get tried and they put in and get, get a too long sentence in, in with all these maniacs that kind of helps turn them into a criminal sure. where, you know, if you let them out on bail and stay with the family and maybe we could have kept them on the good side instead of the bad side. Yeah, look, that happens, but almost never. <laughs> it's just not a particularly common outcome. Uh, people have it in their head that incarceration is this very, very sort of uh, a common response to to low level criminality, even high level criminality. But the reality is, is that only 40 percent of felony convictions in the states result in a post conviction prison sentence. Um, so 60 percent of people who are 40%. convicted of felonies are not then going to prison. Wow. They're either getting out with time served in pre-trial detention or on, you know, sort of pre-trial release conditions, or they're getting probation um, or a conditional discharge where, you know, it's like you behave for this period of time and then we'll we'll drop the case uh, against you. So we'll defer conviction. Um, so, yeah, there, there just isn't a large group of people who are committing low level offenses who don't have serious criminal histories and then are getting shafted by the justice system, but, you know, and being forced to stay inside. Again, that doesn't mean that you can't sort of cherry pick cases in which this does happen. And I've been critical of sort of heavy reliance on cash bail insofar as I think there's something to the critique that you don't want to end up with a system in which someone who is dangerous but wealthy gets to buy their freedom, whereas someone who is relatively harmless but indigent gets stuck behind bars. So my answer is, well, let's just reorient 
the inquiry around risk. And when someone turns out to be risky, we'll hold them. Um, and if they're not risky, we'll release them. That that seems to solve you know the the sort of central critique of of cash bail in the United States. Unfortunately, there is not a real appetite for doing that, even in the jurisdictions that have sort of. Uh, made their bail reforms uh, in such a way that judges have this option, you see a reluctance to exercise it. Um, and part of that has to do with, I think, the mischaracterization of a body of research that shows kind of what you described in, when you were framing your question, which is that there is evidence showing that for some people, for some people, exposure to incarceration will produce worse outcomes insofar as it will make them more likely to commit crimes in the future. Now, the way that you study that is you have to create circumstances under which the decision to incarcerate is random. But that decision is never random, right? There are really good reasons why people get incarcerated, and there are really good reasons why people get spared incarceration. So what researchers do is they they find a population of offenders who are engaged in criminal conduct that isn't so bad that it like becomes obvious that they'll get incarcerated, but also isn't so minor that it becomes obvious they'll be spared incarceration. So they they call these people on the margins of incarceration. And then they look at the judges in that jurisdiction and they categorize them as you know sort of moderate, lenient, and then really harsh. And they only look at the harsh and lenient judges and the cases get randomly assigned to those judges. And they look at people who the harsh judges incarcerate and they look at people on the margins who the lenient judges set free. And yes, the ones that get incarcerated have worse outcomes. The problem, though, is that that research is then grafted on to a body of offenders that is not at all represented by the people in those studies. The typical jail inmate, the typical prison inmate is not the marginal offender. Right. These are mm. people who are have a much more serious risk profile. Um, and so, yeah, I'm all for, you know, not incarcerating first time offenders with no criminal history and, you know, who have engaged in low level misconduct. But that doesn't mean that it's a good idea to release somebody who has 15, 16, 20 prior arrests, which we see very commonly in the stories of really heinous crimes that I'm just frankly sick and tired of reading about. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, how many times do you read a story about a homicide and then it's like, oh, well, the, you know, the, the person arrested was on, out on probation or out on parole and All has five prior now. convictions, 15 I mean, prior especially arrests. Now. It's like, especially now. Yeah. We have these soft on crime DAs in city after city. Thankfully, I mean, they, like there was good news this week out in San Francisco. We know Chesa Boudin got recalled and his yeah. replacement as DA fired 15 DAs yay, go, right? Like, get rid of them. If you don't want to prosecute right. crime, get the hell out of the DA's office. So like, bit by bit, as we see these experiments in, as you would call it, criminal injustice, um, fail. Even yeah. far left cities like San Francisco are coming back to reality and saying, hold on, this is insanity. No one can live like this. All these, these approaches have been afforded to these cities by years of tough criminal justice programs that gave them safety and security and a false belief that they could reverse all the policies and have the same outcomes, right? That's exactly right. I mean, you know, is there a case to be made that there was an overcorrection in the 80s and 90s in the punitive direction? Yeah. But the answer to that is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like we should be trying to reform at the margins and make the system as fair as possible without skewing the benefits that were associated with the program of policing and incarceration that helped bring about one of the greatest achievements in urban American history, which was our violent crime decline. I mean, I don't think people fully appreciate what it means to a community to have crime under control. That allows kids to concentrate in school in ways 
but they just wouldn't be able to if violence was more prevalent. It, it encourages economic investment that creates jobs, that gives people security and, and you know the, the, the sense of security that, that allows them to go out into the world and be productive. If that is lost, that's how you get these sort of generational, you know, uh, pockets of poverty and disinvestment that no one wants to see. And I think part of the problem is, is that the the, the criminal justice debate is sort of framed as one uh, between compassionate supporters of these communities and people who, you know, just just don't like black and brown people. And, and that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the people I know making the sort of cases that I'm making genuinely want to see these communities better off. We're aware of what the research well, says. I mean, about... Raphael, it, it could be the truth. It's just that the labels are switched. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth, yeah. right? Because these yeah. Democrats, if they really cared about these black and brown communities, they wouldn't be using them to advance their own quest for power or electoral hopes, etc. They'd be taking an open, honest look at the problem and for real solutions like people like you are and our other friends at the Manhattan Institute. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, it's it, it really is frustrating in part because a lot of the people kind of making the most outrageous claims about the you know criminal justice, they would never step foot in some of the neighborhoods that have the biggest crime problems. They don't live there. They wouldn't dare walk through those neighborhoods at night. They wouldn't send their kids to school there. They have no idea what it's like, you know, to to wake up in the morning as a you know fifteen year old kid and dread going to school, not because you didn't study for you know a pop quiz or something like that, but because you know there's a, a gangbanger in the school that you got beef with that 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 wants to jump you, and just the anxiety. How you know, like they have no idea what it's like to hear gunshots at night, um, and, and I, I think there needs to be a, a just sort of real conversation and a real exposure uh, of these people to the realities of violence. Um, and I think that would actually be a really good first step in, in sort of well, taking us back. I feel like so I'm 51 years old and I do feel like people uh, 10 years older and 10 years younger. That's the group that really, really gets this, that gets this easily because we lived it. You know, I grew up yeah. first 10 years in the 1970s when crime was terrible. You, my parents didn't turn on the news every night, but I saw enough of it to know it was very dangerous out there. We were in New York state. I'd go down to visit my Nana, who was right outside of New York City, and there was no way we'd go into New York. I mean, it was a right. hellhole at that time. And then you get into the mid 80s and things starts, you know, people start taking a hard look at this and through the 90s, you know, just starting to come out of it. And, and then this sort of glorious period where the crime situation had largely gotten under control in many places like New York where I then moved with my entire family. And now I'm on the back end watching it deteriorate as a result of people forgetting the history or just never knowing about it at all and thinking there's a new way of finding safety and security and a kinder, gentler way with criminals. And it's just there's no empirical evidence for their approach. And now the empirical evidence is disproving all of their hopes and dreams. Will they listen? Raphael, I got to run, but I want people to buy this book. This is an important book. And you guys do great work, you in particular. So to tell the audience again, it's criminal injustice, injustice, what the push for decarceration and depolicing gets wrong and who it hurts most. We're not done with this debate. You're going to need the facts. Raphael provides them. Raphael Mangual, all the best with it. Thank you. Good luck with it. Up next, it's Trump versus Pence today in Arizona. And we have got one of the candidates smack dab in the middle of that fight. Monday, we brought you the Trump-backed candidate uh, for the GOP nomination, 
for governor in Arizona, Carrie Lake. Today, we have her main opponent, Karen Taylor Robeson, and she has been endorsed by Mike Pence. So it's kind of interesting, right? You got Trump, Pence splitting on the candidates. We've seen this in a couple of states, uh, but that's one of the many reasons all eyes are on this primary race in Arizona. Karen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Megan. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. All right. So I don't know if you saw uh, your opponent's uh, interview on the show, but her essential description of you was as a rhino Republican in name only. She thinks you're sort of a soft Republican, as our our viewers today might understand that that word is used about people like Susan Collins of Maine or Mitt Romney. Uh, and she ties you very much to John McCain and Arizona Governor Doug Ducey, who she says are also not on board with the sort of America first MAGA agenda agenda, which I think is is why she uses the term rhino. Want to give you the chance to respond to that? Well, I am a lifelong Republican. I'm an unapologetic conservative. And people who know me know that I check every box. You know, I believe our rights come from God and not the government. I believe in the right to life. I've been pro-life my entire life, always always have been, always will be. Uh, Second Amendment, I mean, I could go through the entire conservative platform and I check every box. And I have been conservative my entire life. I have worked for Republican candidates. I have worked for conservative causes. Uh, I, I worked for Ronald Reagan. It was my first job out of college. I worked for Republican candidates, you know, since before I could even vote. And so it's kind of rich coming from a woman who walked doors for Barack Obama, who donated to Barack Obama, uh, you know, for her to to name call and, and, and call others a rhino. Uh, she's an actress. And with every single passing day, people are beginning to understand they can't trust her because she is very her her actions uh, are very, very different than her words. In fact, Fox News just this week reported uh, on a they they had a somebody found a meme that she posted about a week before Donald Trump was inaugurated. That basically it was a picture of Donald Trump said not my president uh, and even had suggestions for revenge donations to Planned Parenthood, to the ACLU, to the NAACP uh, with hashtag not my president. And so, you know, while I was out raising money for and and um, supporting Donald Trump, both in 2016 and again in 2020, uh, she was she was out telling people she he was not her president. So she, it's, it's very she, interesting to be called a rhino by somebody she, with that kind of background. She uh, her campaign did respond to Fox saying this is very clearly a news anchors post reporting that there was outrage against President Trump's election and asking if people were going to visibly protest. In other words, this isn't her sentiment. This is a news anchor saying this sentiment is out there. Would you like to weigh in on it? Um, you know, do you plan on doing any of these things to protest him? That's that's why that's what she said. But I think, you know, on our program, she admitted that she had supported some Democrats in the past and had uh, different party affiliations. But she thinks that is an asset for her because that describes Donald Trump. <laughs> it describes some of his base who used to be Democrats, but just got so disaffected that they they came over to the Republican side. She thinks that's an asset for her. For you, I think she thinks you're too soft today on some of these core issues that are important to the MAGA crew. What do you think? Well, I think her overnight conversion is a is an insult to to Donald Trump and to you know Ronald Reagan, who was also a Democrat. But his, his you know their conversion was over years 
of, of talking about conservative issues. She found God guns in the GOP about a day and a half before she decided to run for governor. I mean, it is just a fake. She is an, an opportunist. And with each passing day, more and more is revealed about her history and her character. You know, it's, it's one thing to vote for, you know, Barack Obama, which she has admitted to doing. It's another thing to write checks to him. And it's a, it's a whole new level uh, to go out and knock doors uh, for, you know, the, the most progressive uh, president in modern history. She mm -hmm. is she, just not who she says she is. And so you, it's, it's hard to... And then, as you know, she she you know she is she was a purveyor of fake news for 27 years, and she freely admits that she was lying to us for much of that time. And my response to that is to be the governor. You you don't have 27 years to learn your next job. If it took you 27 years to figure out you were peddling fake news in your last job, you know I have spent the last 30 years in the private sector, uh, building a career, building communities, uh, creating jobs, and giving back to my community. Um, and giving back to conservative causes. I have a 30-year track record uh, as an executive, leading teams, accomplishing results, signing both sides of a paycheck. And Arizonans are looking forward and they want a CEO, somebody who knows how to get things done. And I have a record of doing that. They what do want you mean when you say that she did, per that she admits she was a purveyor of fake news for all those years and that she was lying to people? What do you mean? She's, she's admitted as much that she was reading what was put in front of her and that it was fake news. So she's admitted that. And, you know, those are, those are her words. So I just, you know, I am who I am. My record is abundantly clear what I've done, who I've supported, and, and I'm ready to lead. You know, issues you that You two have supported Arizona. Democrats, though, in the past. You donated uh, to Democrats like Representative Ruben, is it Gallego? and other Democrats Ruben, and other local races. Ruben Gallego, I did, I did donate to Ruben Gallego after he was elected in a 40-plus Democrat district here in Arizona. And he also is the only member of our delegation on the House Armed Services Committee. And everybody who knows me knows how much I love and support our military and the importance of the aerospace and defense industry in Arizona. And he is the only voice representing that industry and our military in Washington, D.C. So just to clarify, you donated to him because this was a district in which the Republican had absolutely no chance. It was it was Correct. D plus 40. So you wanted to back the Democrat who was best aligned with your own vision. Who's best aligned with the importance of the military to okay. Arizona. You know, our principal military installations in Arizona have a tremendous economic benefit to the state. Thirteen billion dollars in annual economic impact. And, and again, I, am, I have been a big supporter of our military for decades, and he's the only voice in our delegation who has a seat at the table on the House Armed Services Committee. I got it. I got it. That makes sense. So, and so I would put, what, I, yeah, go ahead. I, I would put my record of donating to Republican candidates and conservative causes up against anybody running for office today. She was very animated uh, on this show, as she has been on Twitter, about she said you exploited older voters by sending out a solicitation for donations that suggested you were going to be pushing the Trump agenda. I'm paraphrasing right now when, in fact, it was a solicitation for you uh, and it made it sound more like they were going to be giving to something more directly aligned with Trump. Here's here she is on Twitter. I'll let her put it in her words. Here it is. These kind-hearted retirees would click the link and little did they know they were signing up for a recurring donation. 
but not to build the wall or help President Trump. It was a recurring donation to a woman that they don't even know. Our team spoke to some of the victims of this ploy. I want to investigate donations to Karen Taylor Robeson, a candidate for Arizona governor. I have a record that you made a donation to her. Do you recall making this donation? Karen King? I'm not familiar with this person that you're even telling me. No, I don't remember anymore. I did not give her a donation. She's a this is obviously a, a part of her campaign to call you those names and and go find voters who sound like they didn't know they donated to you. Would you like to respond? Absolutely. You know, digital fundraising efforts that are done all over this country uh, sent to, and you probably get them. We all get them every single day. And any time somebody wants their money back, they get it. But I can tell you that that my refund rate is far lower than the than the average. Uh, in fact, you know, by by implication, she's attacking Donald Trump because his refund rate for doing the same thing is a multiple of my refund rate. So so she's attacking Donald Trump as well. And it's quite interesting that she has, you know, she doesn't report refunds. So that's that's a statistical impossibility. And so, you know, from my perspective, it's much, much better to be completely transparent. You know, if you want to take a pair of shoes back to Macy's, they refund your money if you don't like your shoes. So anybody who wants a refund, we give them a refund. And, and I will stand by our, our, our practice. And uh, she needs to be transparent. She also needs to include Donald Trump in her complaint uh, about me. Hmm. She suggests that you're trying to buy the election. You're married to a very rich man, as I understand it. And, um, you know, that you've definitely thrown a lot more money at this race than she has. She's in, I think, the low couple of millions and you're up around 13 million. Uh, and that you're thus going to be beholden to that donor class in a way she says Trump wasn't, and in a way she says she won't be. Well, a couple of things. You know, she was living in the living rooms of Arizona for 27 years. So her name ID walking into this race was extremely high. Meanwhile, sure. the last 30 years, I was in the private sector uh, working to build communities, and, and I wasn't on TV for 27 years. But she's also attacking any successful woman. I have had a very successful career. So, you know, she doesn't know the source of my money, but I have been putting my money, my family treasure, my time, my career on the shelf to give back to Arizona. Meanwhile, she has been using her campaign to support herself and her family. All you have to do is look at her, her uh, uh, disclosures and she's paying family members. She, you know, spends an awful lot of money at resorts and, uh, uh, fine uh, dining establishments. And it's just, it's so hypocritical, but it's, you know, quite frankly, it's no surprise. coming from You, as I understand it, and obviously since I, I didn't know how to pronounce Gallego, <laughs> it's Gallego. Gallego. Um, I don't, I, I don't pay enough attention to the legislators, uh, legislators coming from Arizona unless they really hit national prominence. So, um, you know, forgive me, but I, I don't explain to me why you, as somebody who seems to have donated to President Trump, raised a bunch of money for President Trump, supported President Trump's agenda for many years, did not get his endorsement. Like, why did he go with her over you? I think he was given bad information, um, but I and I can't explain it because, yes, we we donated and raised an awful lot of money. Several members of his family were at our home for fundraisers. And I will defend Donald Trump's record all day long. And I do every single day. Uh, he has an incredible record of accomplishment. You know, we can rattle off everything from uh, USMCA to, to getting our NATO partners to pay their fair share to historically low black and, and Hispanic unemployment 
to the rollback of federal regulations to, you know, it's 234 federal judges. I can go on and on. My daughter worked for him at the White House. She was there yeah. until January 20th, turned out the lights at the White House. So we have a long history of supporting, uh, supporting the president. Uh, but what I'm looking for is the endorsement of the voters of Arizona. This race is about Arizona. It's about Arizona's future. That's what I'm out there earning. Every but don't you think day. it has to do with January 6th? I mean, frankly, you know, like she's she's not a believer that uh, Biden won. She calls him an illegitimate president. She says this was a stolen election. And I know and I pointed out to her, you've said there were problems. It was by no means a perfect election. Uh, and there were some unfairnesses in the process, but not stolen. Don't you think that's that's what did it? I, it, it? It may have. I don't know. Again, that's you know, you'll have to ask President Trump why why he did it. Um, you know, I wouldn't be running if Donald Trump was still in the White House. I'm running because Joe Biden's in the White House and our freedoms are under attack. Arizona's borders are overrun. You know, I tell everywhere I go, we're being we're being invaded from the south and our freedoms are under attack from the east. And Joe Biden, the, Joe, the, the Biden-Harris administration is a disaster for this entire country. And Arizona families are feeling it every day. They go to the, you know, having to make a decision whether they're putting gas in a gas tank or food on the tables or asking whether they can even fill their gas tank up to go to work. And I will bring to Arizona a vision for education freedom, economic freedom. And there's 70% of our adult population in Arizona came from somewhere else. We are still that shining city on the hill and the left is coming for Arizona. And I'm gonna do everything mm -hmm. I can, everything I can to win in 2022 and you know, 10 days from now. You know, the Democrats are coming after me now because they know I'm the nominee that they're going to have trouble beating in November. Mm -hmm, they want Carrie Lake to win because they know that's they true. can defeat they, her. He's they think the they can do better in a state that's not hardcore red with a Carrie Lake sort of Trump MAGA type um, candidate. But when, you know, I had an interesting reversal with her when she was on the phone. I mean, when she was on the show, because first she said, either one of you would beat Hobbs, the Democrat. She said, we're not going to lose to her in Arizona. But then she changed it later and said, no, I'm, I'm actually the only one who can beat her, that you would lose to Hobbs. So what do you think? Do you believe that either one of you would beat Hobbs? I believe I will beat Hobbs. Uh, Arizona has a But do you think she will? What do you think she could? Uh, I don't. Based on the numbers that I've seen, no, I do not. Mm -hmm. um, Arizona has a long history of electing the person, not the party. That 20 years ago in 2002, in a red wave year, we had a Republican candidate lose to Janet Napolitano. That's right. So it can right. happen. Arizona now has two Democrat senators. Never in my lifetime did I think I would see that. Yeah. But you know, Carrie Lake has put herself in a position where she's not going to be able to appeal to the majority of Arizonans. We now have more independents registered in Maricopa County than we have Republicans. Which is a first. It's a real, yeah, it's a real question about whether you can go hardcore MAGA in, in Arizona in today's day. That's one of the reasons why your race is getting national attention. You know, the split between the two of you and between Trump and Pence. She is polling ahead of you. Um, what do you make of that? Because the latest polls show her the real clear politics average showed her, I think it was 8.5 percent ahead of you. So how do you like your chances in this primary race on August 2nd? I feel really, really good about our chances. There's a lot of polls out there. Uh, the polls that I listen to are my own internal polls. And the poll, of course, that matters is the, uh, the poll on August 2nd. 
Mm. And of course, the, the voting's already underway. So it's it's that's it's voting day. But as we now know, the, the, the election day is weeks long and months long in some places. Uh, one of the many issues that has been thrust into the national conversation. Karen, thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate it. And we're going to be watching this race very, very closely. We'd love to have you back on after it's over. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All the best. Okay, up next, a deep dive with our panelists on Kelly's court. The probe into Hunter Biden hits a, quote, critical stage. They're basically saying he's going to get charged with something. They're not going to do it within two months of the midterm elections. So that means ASAP, basically means August is the last chance. And uh, that's what we'll get into. Is he actually going to be charged by the feds and with what? And what about Amber Heard, who has now just filed an appeal? We'll tell you her grounds and whether she's got a chance. Don't go away. It's time for Kelly's Court. On the docket today, Hunter Biden, Steve Bannon, Amber Heard, and a woman who is suing a man for not showing up for a date. I kid you not. This is going to be fun. Joining me now, criminal defense attorney Jonas Spillbore and Mark Iglarsh, former prosecutor, now criminal defense attorney, and he does civil work as well. Great to see you both. Welcome back. I was just talking about, can you believe that, that we got this started in 2004? Are we that old? No, what? don't say it. Wow. Yes. Yes. I, I was still married to Dan back then. So it was Kendall's court. And oh since then, I've moved on to another husband, had three children. Wow. Wow. We're getting old, but we're getting we're getting wiser. We're getting more brilliant. Our legal analysis. I, you two are. Yes. And wearing <laughs> right, more so makeup, really, you know. Yeah, yeah, why not? Why not? That's that. That's what comes with age, the need for it, that and Genucel. OK, um, let's talk about Hunter Biden, who's not using the right facial products. He's not making any good decisions. As a matter of fact, he's really just into his crack, his hookers and his guns. And there the three shall meet under the law. The law says you're not. I mean, I don't know about the hookers and the guns, but you're not allowed to have the crack and the gun at the same time, as it turns out. Something he's apparently admitted to many times. And what we read now, Jonna, is that it's on the list of things he's being investigated for as all the Hunter Biden stuff, all of it, all the weird stuff overseas, but seems to have boiled down to whether he broke gun laws uh, or drug laws. Right. Have I have I accurately summarized where we think the federal investigation is? Well, Pretty much. And I think it's summarized thusly because those are the tax. easy tax. Right? Forgot, about, forgot about the tax law. Sorry. Go ahead. Right. right. The tax. Right. The tax evasion. Um, but those are uh, the, the easy charges that can be made against Hunter Biden, because trust me, when you prosecute Hunter Biden, you're not just prosecuting Hunter Biden. Like Hunter Biden's case is going to have tentacles. It's not like uh, Nancy Pelosi's husband getting popped for DWI, where the worst thing that's going to happen is, oh, sorry, old man, but we're going to take your license for 90 days. This is way bigger than that. So I don't know if, you know, the feds are going to try to get the easy stuff, the drugs, the prostitution, the firearms, the the stuff that's not going to affect America as much as, as just sort of a way to get get around it and finally prosecute this loser or if it's going to really, really blow up. Uh, and I'm a little scared by that, but I think, you know, we're, we're going to have to see because they're just this is just the tip of the iceberg what they got. I mean, and they wouldn't have any of this. They wouldn't have any of this, Megan, if he wasn't stupid enough to drop his laptop off at a, at yeah. a third party place 
that a disinterested parties uh, establishment. So exactly. That's, that's, where they're getting, that's where they're getting all this evidence of his bad behavior. And in a way, Mark, the feds are in a tough position on the gun and the drug stuff because uh, the evidence is pretty clearly there, but they it's not really the kind of thing they would normally run around prosecuting. Right. I don't I don't think oh, so. Now it's Megan, a tough situation because they don't want to look like they're doing special favors for him. Right. Listen, if I represent him, I'm celebrating right now if their investigation is now solely focused on guns and crack, because number one, eh, how serious, really? And number two, who knows whether they're really going to bring those charges? They're not in the business going after those types of cases, typically. Third, it's not clear. In other words, yeah, in his book, he brags about using crack every 15 minutes or whatever. But it's do we clear. really know that he answered untruthfully yes. when he said that he wasn't? Listen, I'd rather be on the prosecution side, but, you know, I'm a defense lawyer. So I'm thinking like in his mind, maybe during the time period that he answered the question, he was either in denial. Explain really the question. Feel. They don't know what we're talking about, what, what, where he but said you no. You say it. I don't, I don't have it okay. in front of me. but but he, uh, OK, I'll tell you. In 2018, he responded yeah. no to a question on. I think it was his uh, gun application record um, that asked, are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana or any depressant stimulant, narcotic drug or any other controlled substance? And he said no. Meanwhile, five years earlier, he'd been discharged from the Navy Reserve for testing positive for cocaine. Family members have spoken out about his history of drug use. According to his memoir, Beautiful Things, he was smoking crack every 15 minutes during the period in which he bought the gun. So by his own hand. Which wrote no, allegedly beautiful no. things. He admits he admits he was smoking no. crack when he said no to no. that question. Oh, hold on, hold on. No, mm. and now I'm gonna now people are gonna roll their eyes. But hold on, I'm a lawyer. So are you, Megan? Let's read that question again. The didn't ask during a time period. They asked. Yes, they did. As he are you the question? Are right? you as he's answering that question? Read the first part, and then we'll go to. The are second you part. an unlawful Please. user of? Doesn't have to just be an addict user of or addicted to marijuana. Nope. One at a time. Are you now they didn't say what period of time are you as you're signing this an unlawful user of drugs? Right. And his answer would be no, because maybe that day or that week he had quit. They can't prove (laughs) otherwise. Second. (laughs) Stop it. Second. No, I got you. Now, the second part is, are you an addiction, an addict? Number one, Denial is part of, you know, the whole thing. So does he really label himself as an addict? Had he stopped in in that brief moment, whether it be a day or two, does he want the stigma of being labeled an addict? Does he believe he can conquer the addiction by not calling himself an addict? These are ambiguous terms. Stop rolling your eyes. I win. Bad worded question. Guilty. Jonna. No. no, How's that going to fly? Appeal. Appeal to somebody. (laughs) I, I've always said that if I'm ever in trouble, I'm calling Mark. And that is why, because you can create a great argument out of nothing. Look, he wasn't sober for the five minutes that he filled out that application. Although I will say, I will give you this. That is the world's dumbest question because nobody ah. is going to say, oh, you know what? Yeah, yeah. I am an illegal yeah. user of drugs. It's they're true. just going to rip up the application. They're not going to, they're not going to testify truthfully on that kind of application. And it's up to the people who are vetting those applications to do a little digging to make sure you're not crazy on drugs. Uh, okay, but wait, I'm going to let you finish out. your point, but let me just interject. It's in large part to his own father that he even had to answer that question. And that lying mm-hmm. in response to that form 4473 question is a federal felony 
This is from a Charles C.W. Right. Cook article on National Review that's punishable by up to 10 years in federal prison. So take it up with daddy. Once again, your daddy issues are ruining your life. Go ahead, John. Uh, no, and that's a great point. I, my, my point was made, and that's exactly right. Now, I don't know if the daddy issues are ruining his life or if he's ruining his daddy's life because I, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah, but, yeah that's know, right. I would ask all of you, as I would ask my jurors, do you think you can come up with a way to word that question with more detail or in a better way? And everybody would say, well, yeah, I would say, have you used in the last week? Have you, you know, whatever you want to want to specify since they didn't, that question sucks, especially for prosecution. And I know prosecutors are thinking that. Mm. All right. Well, let's move on to the other piece, because it's also illegal under federal law to use banned drugs while in possession of a firearm. So you're supposed to answer the question on the application for the firearm, honestly. But you're also once you get the drugs or sorry, the gun, not supposed to use drugs while in possession of it, which matters. This is Charles G.W. Cook and a good point. A great deal, because a week or so after he purchased his firearm, Hunter Biden appeared in a bunch of sordid photographs with one hand on the trigger of the gun and his other hand, of course, cupping his genitals, something he loves to do while what appears to be crack cocaine can be seen on a plate alongside uh, used and packeted condoms. Gross. Alongside drug paraphernalia and a spoon. What do you mean? Not enough. You got not enough. Listen, the I, crack I right next to him. Playing, I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You tested it, Megan. What do you mean? <laughs> appear. You said appears to be crack. Do you think do you think that ever in the criminal justice arena they have ever prosecuted someone for possession without a lab test? Hmm. We don't know what that is. Hmm. You don't know what it is. I see that. Move that that one. That was Granted. a little shaky. It's a little shaky. But, Johnny, you oh, tell me, do you need a test to convince yes. a jury that's crack? You're not going to need a test to convince what? a jury that that's crack. Oh. And here's the, here's the other thing. <laughs> Even I mean, he's committing crimes left and right. But let's look at the other the bigger point. This man should not have a license to possess a firearm. And you don't need to prove what drug is on the coffee table. Um, when you snatch his license. So even if they don't successfully prosecute him on that, they've got to yank the firearms license if they haven't already. This guy, mm. uh, he's just a walking time. He had, didn't, I read that he had a, his friend actually was so concerned over his drug use and his possession of the firearm that she took the firearm and threw it in a, a public garbage can across the street from a school, but which is also- so Everyone in his but, orbit is stupid. Yeah, <laughs> everyone. exactly. Exactly. I need to make something very clear. I don't disagree. I don't disagree that during the time period, per his own admission, with the drugs that he was allegedly doing, which, by the way, doesn't prove um, conclusively that he was doing drugs. But with what he says in his own book, I think that's enough to prove, if true, that he shouldn't have been possessing a gun. I'm not making that argument. I'm solely making a legal argument, which is what we're here for as lawyers in Kelly court, that I don't believe that they can carry their burden on this case solely because a picture in the background looks like something you guys think may be crack. Sorry, mm. doesn't do it I, in a court. I law. think they're going to get the, the, the little Hallie, the then girlfriend who was the dumb dumb who thought a better place would be right across from a school. Um, and mm. she's she could absolutely be a witness to say, yeah, he did it. Uh, he he loved to wield the gun and he loved to grab his genitals and he loved to do the crack in between. All right, let's move on to the next question, though, about possible prostitution charges, because that's another crime that doesn't often get 
you know, pursued, get prosecuted, though sometimes it does. And if your name's not Hunter Biden, definitely sometimes does. I don't know. I don't know anyone to whom it's happened, but so I read they do go after both prostitutes and Johns. And Hunter Biden, if there's anything he loves more than crack, it's prostitutes. I mean, the stories are out of control. Uh, documents, texts, videos showing he spent, this is citing the Daily Mail, uh, $30,000 on, quote, escorts in just five months. This is why he needed that seat on Burisma, the Ukrainian company. He had so many hookers running around and they don't come cheap, Mark. Uh, the president's son wrote checks to a Ukrainian woman. Oh, speaking of Ukraine, whose transactions were red flagged by banks for suspicious activity. OK, this is like an anti-corruption thing that they normally look into. They're like, why is he doing this? Turns out he's hiring hookers and um, a lot of them. He, he's got a check here. They're, they, they're showing a, a picture of the Daily Mail. For $3,400, it says the money is for the Blue Water Wellness Reboot. And that's the name of the rehab facility. Joe Biden was loaning Hunter money to pay, you know, to pay to go to. But in fact, we have, we believe it may it may have been all one big disguise to cover his payments to the hookers. Uh, <laughs> aren't you so happy you know, your kids are OK? Like, <laughs> Megan, if I had a dollar for every time you said genital and hooker so far, I'd be a wealthy <laughs> fellow. <laughs> You do get hire one of these hookers. I mean, they're not coming cheap. Thirty four hundred dollars is a lot. So would they go after him for, quote, transporting prostitutes across across state lines, which, by the way, violates another set of laws? You, you can't use the hooker and you can't transport the hooker across the state lines. Should I go first and tell you how sure. I don't think this is going to happen again to everyone's dismay <laughs> legally? Let me, let me, can, okay. I, can I play Mark for a oh. minute? Let me just play okay. Mark. Let me tell you what Mark's going to say. Yeah. Mark's going to okay, say go he's ahead. not going to prove that they're hookers. Mark's going to say, what if they were his girlfriends? And he's just buying <laughs> expensive gifts. Am I right or am I right? You're in the Mark. ballpark. I mean, unless you bring in cinnamon, amber, fallopia, and toiletta to say, <laughs> yeah, that's what he did, then then I don't think you have a case. <laughs> fallopia is the greatest yeah. name ever. That's, that's a new one. <laughs> I bet you someone has used it. Um, maybe we could. I don't know if they're in Ukraine. It's going to be tough. But this is alleged oh, just across, just across <laughs> across state lines, not across country lines. Um, I it, look, I think you're right. If this is what all of the big web has boiled down to hunters in a good position, the tax mm -hmm. charges are a different matter. Those looked pretty good against him, but he did pay over a million dollars in back taxes once he found himself in the feds in the feds crosshairs which lowers the likelihood of prostitu or prostitution prosecution, <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't. Yeah, but but doesn't eliminate it. So. All right. Final predictions. Will will Hunter Biden in the next 45 days be charged with a crime? Mark. No. Mm, That's it. Bold. All right, Jonna. I'm going to. And say by the way, wait, hold on. Not because he didn't do anything so you can minimize the hate mail, folks. I'm just saying I don't think based upon the analysis that I provided and more that I can share with you if you just go to speaktomark.com. Um, I am telling you, I don't think they could prove all, all these charges. And they wouldn't and bring it unless why, they got that. He, that's why he, he might get charged, Mark, because now then he can become a sympathetic figure instead of the idiot that he is. Because if they charge him with this crap and then they can't prove it, then it's like, oh my God, my son, my son Hunter, look, he's an innocent man. And there that's going to be more theater and that's going to be a bunch of BS. And that's why he probably will get charged but not with anything significant. Mm. Like, 
That's a good theory. Either too. way, it looks good for him. Either way, we're celebrating if, if hypothetically he was my client. I think you're right. I, I think you would be celebrating. I don't I think this is kind of pathetic that all of these multiple mm-hmm. violations of the law will result in nothing for him. Pathetic? Can we flip that? Pathetic that we have due process and you actually have to prove things. Not like oh, come a, on. A, a, it's like a crack or it might be oh, sugar. Who knows? If his on. name were Joe Schmo or whatever, Hunter Schmo instead of Same Hunter problem. Biden. No, he'd be no, not not on this many violations and the tax violations, all that stuff. No way he would be under. He would be getting indicted. Um, OK, let's move on, because Steve Bannon is also in some really big trouble. And the jury, if people haven't been paying attention, he's he's been on trial this week um, for contempt of Congress. The jury's deliberating right now. We're kind of on verdict watch at this moment. It could back, come back at any moment. And the reason he's on trial is because. He got subpoenaed by the January 6th committee to turn over all documents and information and sit for depositions, I think, too. And he basically said, pound sand, you can go take a long walk off a short pier and tried to claim executive privilege. But that was sort of a bogus claim from the start, John. I mean, I can see just from any I'm trying to be fair to the guy, but like he wasn't even working in the White House for most of the time covered by the subpoena. Yeah. My take on what really happened here. Now, first, let me let me jump ahead. I think this is a this is another BS prosecution. I think it's just the uh, the feds kind of sticking it to him because what he did here was when he got subpoenaed, he said, I'm not playing your game. I'm not participating in it to himself. I'm not participating in these hearings. You can go pound sand, got on the phone with his lawyers and said, You know, make me look like I'm not saying go pound sand, but I'm telling them to go pound sand. So what do the lawyers do? Then the lawyers like, oh, subpoena. I don't know. Let's uh, try to change the date. Let's change the scope. Let's do something. Let's talk about these subpoenas. And while they're doing that, which is perfectly normal and happens all the time in civil and administrative cases, by the way, not involving famous people or sometimes involving famous people, while they're doing all that. The DOG is like, you know what? Forget it, Bannon. We're going to pants you. You're pants. We're going to take your lunch money. We're going to prosecute you for two misdemeanor charges, which the most you can do on these charges is 60 days in jail, which is nothing in real time. So um, that's what they did to him. And so now Steve Bannon's like, well, well, wait a minute. I didn't exactly say I wasn't going to supply anything. I just said I needed to the scope and the dates and the this. So. Even if he loses this trial, which he probably will, uh, it's again, it's a whole lot of nothing. He didn't want to participate in this in this theater, which is what these hearings uh, seem to be to me. The um, just to just to tell the, uh, the the listeners, it's a federal trial. He um, it's been seven decades since someone went to jail for this mm-hmm. offense, criminal contempt of Congress. So, you know, once again, we have, you know, somebody connected to a very famous politician who may or may not be prosecuted in Bannon's case. Yes. And Hunter's case, we'll we'll see for crimes that are definitely on the books, but you know, aren't aren't always pursued. But the, having said that, Mark, he does appear to have like stuck his finger right in the eye of the congressional committee and said, <laughs> F you, I'm not doing it. Yeah, that appears he did. And let me say two things. One, Jonna is so hardcore. 60 days in jail is no big deal. Really? That, that's that's a lot of time. Um, I wouldn't want to do that. And number two, I will say that the stronger argument is not necessarily executive privilege, 
but is to somehow get his lawyers to say the date that they asked him to come forward. Listen, that's a suggestion in our business. And it, and, and I do deal with subpoenas all day long from federal yeah, prosecutors. It kind of is. It's not always a hard set date. You kind of work with things. You negotiate. You say, well, maybe we'll do this. And, and he's going to say, you know, that's my lawyers doing. We're still working on it. The um, the, the committee has said we, time is of the essence. You know, it was a real date and time is of the essence. Like we don't have a lot of time. And of course, the mm. reason for that, and they've stated this publicly elsewhere, New York Times and also they realize they're probably going to lose control of Congress in the midterm elections. And they really want to have this wrapped up They They love their little investigation. They want to get all their witnesses. And they realize that a Republican controlled house probably doesn't give two dams about Steve Bannon, what he has to say. So, like, I don't know if that's a real time is of the essence argument. I mean, I suppose if the judge is, you know, a Democrat, maybe. But I don't think the judge is a Democrat. Isn't it a Trump appointee? I mean, you're in a Democrat area in D.C., but I think the judge might be a Trump appointee. Um, yeah. So I don't know how this. Yeah. How does this how does this shake out with the jury? Like, what do you what do you predict is going to happen to him? Well, uh, you know, this is interesting. I'm wondering why he actually didn't maybe waive jury for a case like this, because, mm -hmm. you know, maybe a Trump appointed judge would be a little bit more sympathetic and kind of get rid of it. But he's probably he's probably dead to rights, legally speaking, because there are, there are laws in the books that say, you know, what you have to uh, comply with subpoenas, et cetera. And the jury might not understand. Although, wait a minute. Actually, let me take that back. The jury is probably going to be very savvy because. It's a jury, a D.C. jury. A lot of them work in the area. They know how politics work. So I don't know. Maybe for that reason, they'll either hang or they'll find a, a, a way to find him not guilty. I wonder, because in its federal court, which is always like, you know, that's better. I think it's just better in general to be in federal court, although um, the feds usually win. They usually win when you're in federal court. But I think that, you know, you still got coming from the same jury pool in federal court. And these are going to be D.C. area people, which tend to be very, very blue, very, very blue. And in the very, very blue circle, Steve Bannon is the devil. He's the yeah. devil. It might be worse than Trump to these people. One of the jurors admitted that they watched at least the opening um, primetime January 6th hearing. Only Democrats watch that. I mean, only partisans watch that and news people like me. Although I didn't, I made my team do it. I didn't have, I didn't want to watch any of that. But anyway, my point is that's not good for him. Uh, so I think the, the odds are very no. much against Steve Bannon. And I don't know, I, there's no plea deal to be cut. I mean, he went into the trial, Mark, saying, never mind, I'll give you what you want. I'll sit for a deposition. And by that point, they were like, nope. That, that does help. You know, if I'm a juror, I go, well, he was going to do it. And, and maybe he was counting on the delay to help, you know, iron things out. But I also think that if the prosecutors keep this simple, we sent them a subpoena. He was supposed to show up. He thumbed his nose at it. Now he's arguing it's gray. It was black and white. He didn't do it. Find him guilty. I disagree with Jana. I would never waive jury. I would want as a defense lawyer to have 12 people and just find one who just says, you know what? I'm not going to go along with the rest. I don't think he should be found guilty. And at least you get a hung jury. I wouldn't trust just because this is a Trump appointee, let's say, that the judge would then say, so anything under the whole Trump arena, you know, I'll go in that direction. Yeah. This judge may say, you know, what you did 
was thumb your nose at a subpoena and we value subpoenas and you have to abide by them. I do think the going for a jury trial suggests he knows he has no defense. Like if he thought he had a very solid case, uh, a very solid defense, I think he'd put, be happy to put it in the hands of the judge. But he doesn't. He really has no defense. He didn't other than put like, one on. He didn't no, really he didn't put on a defense. I, I mean, it's really like maybe my lawyers misled me. This is a bullshit crime. Who the hell knows with Steve Bannon? Maybe he wants a conviction. Maybe he wants to right. go like a Can martyr. I throw out a theory? Can I throw yeah. out a theory with that? His yeah. podcast apparently is rocketing up the charts. He's like in the top 10. He only yeah. then, you know, becomes a, a stronger and more marketable and a bit of a martyr if he's found guilty. I, you know, I don't follow him, but I would imagine that this is all helping him. That's true. His podcast was like at 111 and now it's in the top 10. And if you're telling me it's really potentially only 60 days or two, two months, I don't know. I, I, I heard it could be potentially longer than that. But if that's all it is, uh, I don't know. That's not that hard to do. And I doubt he'd get the full time anyway. Maybe he won't get any time. Maybe he'll get some sort of a slap on the wrist. Right. Uh, OK, um, let's move on to January 6th, because the whole reason Steve Bannon's testimony was relevant was because they're going after the big kahuna. And that's Donald Trump. And certainly they've dinged up Trump, you know, his character in these hearings. They've dinged him up politically, which is really their goal. But the big, big question is whether they're going that they, have they laid the foundation for legal charges against Donald Trump insurrection, conspiracy to seditious insurrection. Like, have they done that? Because there's a large faction of Democrats that want to see that want to see Donald Trump in handcuffs um, and, of course, exit the political scene. But that's the consolation price. They want to see him in handcuffs. I don't know. I mean, I've watched enough of it and read enough about it to say they don't have anywhere close to what they need for that. But what do you guys think? Jonna? No, I'm with you. I don't think they have anything close. And, you know, I don't maybe I'm in the minority here, but I really think that the January 6th hearings are nothing but political theater, um, kind of like a Hail Mary. They know they're coming up on the midterms. They know that. Uh, I, I don't know if I can be really critical of Joe Biden. Like, seriously, you guys, lights are on, but nobody's home. I mean, th this is it's a it's a scary time. And the committee who is conducting this, these hearings are all completely anti-Trump. I mean, there's like two rhinos out of nine people on the committee, and one of them hates Donald Trump. Liz Cheney can't stand the guy. So it's like, what are you really trying to accomplish here? Just more egg on his face? Because they're not going to, all they can do, they can't find him guilty of anything. They can just recommend that the DOJ um, institute criminal charges against him, and, and, and then you'd have that. So I don't think, I don't really think this is going to go anywhere, and I don't know if they're going to, finish up before the midterms, to be honest. But we'll Mark Adam Schiff at the beginning of this uh, said he thought there was now credible evidence to support a variety of criminal charges. Jamie Raskin, Democrat of Maryland, said the committee would show that Trump organized a coup on January 6th. Uh, John Dean, former Nixon counsel, said an indictment would be forthcoming. Indeed, I don't see how the line prosecutors at DOJ cannot take a lot of this evidence and use it. Trump's in trouble. He's in real trouble. Lawrence Tribe said the only question is, What's going to be charged first? That's it, because there's tons of felonies shown. Mm -hmm. These are all Democrats, of course. Um, the tone has shifted a little as we go into as we went into final hearing last night or maybe it's final hearing, final hearing for now, where it's more like he's terrible. He ought to be held accountable. I don't know. It's like a little softening from these Democrats. I think they might know they didn't get there. But what do you what do you think? Do you, criminal charge? There's, basis okay, or no? there's a big difference between morally and legally. 
So morally, hypothetically, if they proved, and again, I don't know what they proved. There's no vigorous cross-examination. There's nobody representing the other side. So I just have to take everybody's word for it. So I don't know what the facts are, but let's just say hypothetically, there's facts that show that he knew um, that there was a you know, potential riot happening. And for a period of time, he chose not to do anything about that. One would say, yeah, morally, the leader of our free world should probably put a stop to it and have said something. Question is, is there some type of criminal charge that you could levy? I don't see it for that. So the next question is, and a lot of people are asking me, what about inciting a riot? Look what he did. And I'm a huge free speech advocate. There's a difference between, let's say you're on a crowded street, you yell, those cops are horrible. They did something horrible. And you just say that. And as a result, people then attack the cops. That's legal and constitutionally protected. That's different than saying, let's attack the cops. You guys attack the cops. So similarly, if Donald Trump is saying things like the election is is fraudulent and they stole it and all of that then causes people to react, that's very different than him saying, let's go to the Capitol and let's commit crimes. Let's do you know damage. Let's revolt. There's a, this fine distinction between what's First Amendment protected speech and what's criminal activity. And I think they fall yeah. short in terms of proof so far. You're 100 percent correct. I, I could not agree with what you just said more. And it's just, we're just kind of pretending that his rhetoric about the election is the same thing as incitement, I-N-C-I-T-E-ment, under the law. They're, they're, their case is political. You know, their case is political. And the, the voters will decide whether they've made that or not. But by the way, his support has gone up. Trump's numbers have gone up. His lowest poll numbers ever, um, which I do believe were post January 6th, are still not as low as Joe Biden's are right now. How about that? Uh, but what they're saying is he, he knew he hadn't lost and he lied when he said over and over again that he did that that Joe Biden had lost. Like he let me restate that. He knew that Biden won and he was lying to the American public when he said that Biden actually lost. And then he falsely incited a bunch of insurrectionists to go and take over uh, the, the, the Congress in, a, in an attempted coup. First of all, Trump absolutely believes to this moment, and I 100 percent believe from January 6th forward that he won. Does anyone really think Trump doesn't actually believe he won? Yes. How are these Democrats that, like, the, of course he believes that. He, that's why he gets no. so mad at people. No, no that's wait, why wait, he hold doesn't... on. Oh, Megan, he yeah, 100% really thinks he won. Wait, wait, what? You think he that Trump, he won. in his mind, he genuinely, to his core, believes that he won yes. this election? You, you really believe that? I would bet every dime I have on it. Every oh single dime. Goodness. Yes, Ditto. he believes it. No, he's selling it, baby. He knows no. he can't expect that he, he he came in second place. So he just comes up with this theory and many people jump on that bandwagon. Really? Well, no. But I mean, whatever's in him that can't allow him to lose is making him reject any evidence that suggests he lost. So this whole argument by oh, the look. Democrats, like knowingly lied, was out there. They, they keep trying to prove like Bill Barr told him this was bullshit. This person went in and said, we don't have any fraud that would change the results. That's their case. It's like, well, that only shows us that Trump heard that. That doesn't show us that Trump believed it. Bingo. He's just shaking I, I his don't, head. I, I'm still listening to you and who I respect very much. I can't believe that Trump has actually 
convinced you that he believes that any more than I think that he believes that abortion should be unlawful. I mean, I, I think it's all mm, about politics. Things. And I don't no, I agree think with that you on point two. Right. I agree with you on point two. Yeah. Trump is not at his heart pro-life, uh, but no. nobody on that so, side gives a damn because he did what they wanted him to do. Say what you want about Trump. He's at least smart enough to know that he fell short and won a second place medal no, in no, that election. Not. I do He's not smart enough, but he has enough damage done from I don't know what I don't want to psychoanalyze the guy. Whatever happened in his childhood has made him incapable of accepting the label loser. He's incapable. He's not like the rest of us where it's like, I don't like it, but every once in a while it happens and I'll just get back up and fight back. He's like hard pass. It didn't happen. But wait, I want to get to the reason I'm getting into all this is because their big evidence on Thursday night was listen to Trump in the outtakes from the speech he ultimately finally gave condemning the rioters and all that. Like he finally did get around on January 7th to saying the things that they wanted him to say. But there were several things that were taken out of those remarks. And we have a mashup of what they played last night on the outtakes. Here it is. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. You do not represent our movement. You do not represent our country. And if you broke the law, you can't say that. I'm not gonna, you, I already said you will pay. The demonstrators who infiltrated the Capitol have defied the seat of dust. It's defiled, right? See, I can't see it very well. Okay, I'll, I'll do this. I'm going to do this. Let's go. But this election is now over. Congress has certified the results. I don't want to say the election's over. I just want to say Congress has certified the results. I would like to begin by addressing the heinous attack yesterday. Yesterday is a hard word for me. Just take it out. Ah, uh, good. Take the word yesterday because it doesn't work with the heinous attack on our country. Say on our country. Want to say that? No. no, no. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. My only goal was to ensure the integrity of the vote. Okay. Uh, I, 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 I'm like not, I'm not moved. I am not moved. The only thing in there that was interesting was where he said, I don't want to say this election is now over. I'm not going to say that. Well, right. he's Publicly. been saying that ever since. I mean, he's kind of been suggesting he, he he still thinks it's up in the air. He doesn't think Biden's legitimate. You're I'm being called. I'm being called over here because I, I don't know if Biden's legitimate either. But <laughs> John, that's John, true. John. I, I mean, when I look at like, I honestly did. Do you really think that Biden got more votes than Obama? Like, I just I'm not buying it either. But we're we're talking about the January 6th hearing. So no, I, I hear you. I, it, it It is hard to believe. I'm go, I will concede that <laughs> point. Um, but I, you know, as a journalist, I need proof as a lawyer. I need proof. And I know people say, well, there wasn't enough time. Well, there's been lots of time since then. And none of it has actually proven that anything would have changed the actual outcome. Even Arizona, we talk about Arizona all the time, Arizona, Arizona. Even mm-hmm. if Trump had won Arizona, he would have lost the election. Um, so that's not to say there wasn't any funny business, not to say that they didn't change the law to Biden's benefit in Pennsylvania and so on. The media put their thumb on the scale, all that stuff. Yes, but proof, different story. Anyway, uh, I don't think they've got Trump on January 6th. I think they, they need to move on for the love of God. Shut up. 
and move on. And uh, if they get thrown out in November and are forced to move off of this stupid, uh, never ending primetime show that people aren't into, uh, so be it. Okay, Mark and John is standby because we have somebody else who people think is delusional, and that's Amber Heard. And she's back with a new appeal trying to get the entire verdict against her thrown out. Stand by for that. Okay, so Amber Heard cannot let it go. She has filed an appeal after losing her her motion last week for a new trial. She first tried to get the trial judge to set aside the verdict. And she had like a new interesting curveball. I mean, she's asserting all the same stuff as before, you know, like it's unfair and you shouldn't. But she said in the motion, juror number 15 is a problem. Uh, Juror number 15 was a 77 year old man who um, was not the one they wanted. No, reverse that. Juror number 15 was a 52 year old man. Right. Trying to get it. Yeah. That's the one who showed up. Yes, it was the younger guy. But they had subpoenaed, you know, your jury summons the 77 year old dad. And the two guys have the same name. They're father and son. They live in the same house. And so the younger guy showed up and the older guy should have. And he wound up getting picked and he served. And on this basis, Mark, she says that they should throw out the verdict. How do you even get from A to B? Yeah, that seems bizarre. I don't know that state's specific law, if there's something in there that I don't know about. But ultimately, I don't think so, because whoever showed up, whether it be a potato or the guy's son, they then vetted him and had full opportunity. Both sides did, including the judge, to ask questions to determine whether they can render a fair and impartial jury, uh, impartial decision. And they did. And thus he was admitted on the jury. I I don't think this is going to do anything. Maybe it was Toiletta. Maybe that's who first got. Oh, that. No, <laughs> both of them. There was 15 and 14, respectively. If you're just so tuning she- in. Megan's just quoting random super names. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Kelly's court. So, Jana, they say Amber Heard's lawyers say Virginia law is very extremely is the word strict about juror identities. And they say this case of mistaken identity is grounds for a mistrial. They are so rich. You know, if I could talk to Amber Heard, I would I would shake her by the shoulders and say, please quit while you are behind, because that's where she is now on the juror issue. The the person who should be the most upset right now is the father who actually got summoned but didn't serve because he might get summoned again. And nobody likes jury duty. So he should be like, give me my pass. But I agree with Mark. Jurors, it's not a game show. You don't walk into a courthouse, sit down, and all of a sudden you're a juror. There's voir there's questions by the judge, there's written questions, and the summons go out just randomly. Like, you know, they go to whatever, the, the voter election board, and, they, and, they, and out they go. And so it's not like they're handpicking the jurors who are going to be possibly seated on a jury, number one. So it really doesn't matter who shows up. And mm. number two... What's Amber's endgame here? I think she's trying to save face, yes, but ultimately she just doesn't want to have this $10 million judgment hanging over her head. And there are better ways to get out from under that than doing what she's doing and incurring more attorney's fees when she can't afford to pay the attorney's fees to date. She needs to have a little heart to heart with her ex-husband and say, what's it going to take for you not to come after me for this judgment? Because if you're going to come after me, I might go bankrupt or I, you know, whatever other option she has to run from this judgment for the rest of her life. So that's a better course of action for her. Yeah. If that's what, what they she say, wants we, to do. When you're in a hole, stop digging. 
But she's got a, right. you know, she's trying. Like she has a terrible verdict against her right now, which her lawyer says she cannot afford to pay. So it's like, it, and and the lawyer is supposed to be getting paid by an insurer because when you get sued like this in a civil court, generally you have insurance that will defend you. And if you settle or get a verdict against you, the insurance company will pay, which is why Don Lemon can say publicly, in my opinion, <laughs> that he didn't pay anything to his accuser is I bet you dollars to donuts. It was the insurance company. OK, that's another case. Um, but anyway, back on this case, her insurance company's telling her to to take a walk too. So the insurance company doesn't want to pay anything. So she really is in a pickle. We'll get to the insurance company in a second, maybe. But Mark, she's going to go in, in there on appeal and she's going to say, among other things, I believe, based on what we heard from her lawyer, um, unfair. Social media was out of control. This jury was influenced. I believe they listened to the Twitter mob and didn't listen to the evidence. And um, as a result, she didn't get a fair trial. The, the, so far, the appeal is only two pages and it says, the court made errors that prevented a just and fair verdict consistent with the First Amendment. We are therefore appealing. Yeah. Deny, 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 deny. Here, denied meaning they're not going to do anything that can disturb the verdict on those grounds. I'm going to make the strongest argument. It doesn't mean it will prevail. But her strongest argument, follow me here, is that the jury did find in her favor on the countersuit for two million, the substance of which would suggest that there was some credibility to the fact that she was a victim because when the attorney claimed that she manufactured the whole thing, apparently they found in her favor and said that was not right. So if there is some shred of evidence or belief that she believed that she was a victim, then she writes that statement from the position of someone who believes that they're an abused person and thus they have the First Amendment constitutional protection afforded to all those who write things. Now, obviously, the argument on the other side, which I'm going to get in the hate mail, because boy, did I get it during the trial when I raised that argument just as a lawyer, is, you know, no, they found that you can't make it up and it was all not accurate and she just lied. But then what about that verdict that she got in her favor? What does that say? Well, I know what it says. It okay. says we don't we think you're a hot mess liar. You made up right. this whole thing against Johnny Depp. They said but, that in their verdict. You saw that? Hot yes, yeah. I read that. You got to read between the lines. You, you, you learn later when, you, when you've been practicing longer. Uh, it's a joke because Mark's Mark and run circles around me legally. Um, but but I think it was saying um, your th that that representative Johnny Depp who went out there, the agent who went out there and said you created a fake scene. You know, like you messed up your apartment to try to make it look extra bad when the cops got there. That was bullshit like that. There's no evidence you did that. You may have made up all this other stuff, but we don't believe you created a fake crime scene. They didn't prove that. So we're going to say that that was defamation by Johnny Depp's representative. And therefore, he gets pinned with a two million. I think they were just looking for a compromise compromise just to say, like, I'll give her something a little so we look fair. Maybe I, mm. I, I don't that, know that, that explains that yeah. explains the split to me. That, that like they did not believe her. And even one of the jurors has given an, uh, an interview to uh, a news outlet saying we never believed any of her claims of abuse. We, we knew that she was acting. We did not believe her. So well, the, the I, mistake, I really don't. And, and, and I, I don't know if it's been said, but the mistake was she was so poorly prepared to testify. He was honest and open. Unbelievably. All she needed to do was sit down and say, oh, there were things that I did that I'm embarrassed. Yes, the poop was my job. I did that. 
I said horrible things to him. She didn't admit anything. And thus, when she had claims that they could have embraced potentially supported by her sister, supported by some of the audio recordings, they just rejected her outright. Mm. She wasn't prepared at all because being abused, being abused or feeling abused, that's a very kind of abstract term. It could be verbal. It could be physical. They would have accepted it to some extent, I think, maybe if she had just been open and honest about other stuff, but she wasn't. Now, Megan, I, I disagree. I think she was overprepared. Her testimony came across so damn rehearsed that, that it was almost you think that she learned a, a whole new script for it. And the jury didn't buy it and the public didn't buy it. And you know what? The, the fact that her team thinks that maybe social media didn't do her any favors. I think social media did do her favors because they were so hard on her based on what everybody was watching that I actually started to feel sorry for her. So oh, if I'm no. feeling sorry for her and I'm an ice queen, then the jury might have started to feel a little sorry I'm an for ice her queen. too. That's why, <laughs> that's why she got a little $2 million. Uh, no, no, no. Sympathy, sympathy team of one. She was crucified on social media. My kids were bringing me all the TikToks. She oh, was yeah. Crucified. Delightful for Too those bad. who were getting the kick out of it, but it actually did make me feel sorry for her because it was so relentless. Like, but I mean, too bad because, like, that's not that's not a grounds for appeal. First of all, the jurors are yeah. not supposed to be looking at social media unless the defense, right. I mean, Amber Heard, has proof they right. did. She's just, you know, she's throwing darts uh, without a, a real target. And secondly, secondly, yeah. she started the PR war. She started it. She's the one who called TMZ and said, "Take pictures of me outside of the." She did. They proved that at trial. So. You cannot, as I said in my talking points the day after the verdict, live by the sword, die by the sword. You can't start the PR war, lose it, and then cry, I'm a victim and this is unfair. Well, I disagree. I disagree. No, no, no. I got to disagree with Megan. You could start it if it persists and that then influences the jury, which they cannot prove. That's a different story. They can't prove it. That's the problem. You could start it, it. And if that somehow adversely affects the jury, because it continues and somehow their verdict is based upon a TikTok that they saw or other you know, influences other than the evidence and the law, then yeah, you've got an argument. Unfortunately, they're not gonna be able to prove it here. Yeah, they have not been able to close that loop. All right, let me f- finish with this. A woman is suing over a date that didn't happen. Um, okay, wait, let me, where, where, I have so many papers in front of me. I gotta, I gotta get to this because it's amazing. Um, the woman says that her she went out on one date with the man. Oh, here it is. Her name is Kashante Short of Flint, Michigan. They went out on one date. They were supposed to go on another. He did not show. Now she's suing him for intentional infliction of emotional distress, saying uh, it was the anniversary of her mother's death or it was her mother's birthday and her mother had just passed away and he knew it and it caused a lot of pain. And here's the defendant, Richard Jordan, making his defense to the judge. We had a date, one date, and nothing else after that. And now I'm being sued for $10,000. It was, I don't see how this is going to go any further. I think it's a waste of your time. The judge said, then file a motion to dismiss. Here's a bit of the exchange between the plaintiff, Kashante, and the judge himself when she claimed that was a lie, that the defendant was lying to the judge. Watch. It was never perjury in the beginning. It was per- perjury after his response. Well, you can't you can't say, listen, he has he, he has the right to put whatever is in the answer 
I'm not saying he can't. But you can't do you can't add another count because you don't like or you disagree with what is in his answer. If he responds and his response is a lie, it's perjury, then my documents will prove that no, he lied no, in his no, response. No, 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 no. <laughs> it's his version. First of all, do you understand what perjury is? Yes, I, I understand perjury, perjury is a lie. I no, know what perjury means. Perjury is a statement, a, a false statement made under oath. So exactly. And I got documents that prove he was lying. Okay. So what do we think about Kashante's chances of recovering her $10,000, Jonna? I love this case. Well, first of all, it's not a thing. You can't sue somebody for standing you up on a date. It's not, no. it doesn't rise to emotional distress. But I got to love this poor schlub who had the one date, who's now hauled into court on this. He's got to be saying to himself, damn, I dodged a bullet <laughs> time here. He's got to be. And that poor judge, you know, she was giving it right back to him. There's more to that video where, she, you know, she's, she says to the judge, are we done here? Like, could you imagine? There's a picture of the defendant with his, just his head buried in his hands. He's so unhappy. Mark, I, I, do, you, do you disagree? She should pay for his gas to the court, yes, yes. For every single expense, she should be fined. And she apparently has a history of malicious uh, uh, prosecution against people. Oh, I hate vexatious people. litigants. Mm-hmm. All yeah. right, so the last Horrible. word, you guys hate that, but don't hate you. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Want to tell the audience that uh, I'm going to be off for a short vacation next week, but we will be back with a fantastic lineup of guests, Adam Carolla, Dr. Laura, yay. And Glenn, back to name just a few. So see you in about one week. And uh, thank you in the meantime so much for listening. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.